chapter 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until, until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out, of, out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, you ha- when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good afternoon yet again. Would you now join me asking for the Lord's blessing as we pray? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and your grace, for they are new every morning. And Lord, how we need it every morning, how we need it every night, how we need it every moment of every passing time that we have as we walk on this earth. Lord, we ask that as we sit at your feet yet again, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would exhort, encourage, and equip us so that we could be the men and women you've called us to be in spite of all the things that we would have to face, in spite of all the things that we would have to forsake. Oh God, enable us to follow through in obeying your word. It may begin now as you teach us yet again your precious, wonderful word. And so, Lord, be with us now and speak to us for we are listening. Oh God, please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Amen. You know, life teaches us that when you decrease the frequency of certain activities in life, that it can be detrimental to you. Again, life teaches us that when you decrease certain activities, it can actually be detrimental to you. For example, if you decrease the frequency of sleeping eight-hour nights, and if you do that constantly, that will be detrimental to your body. If you decrease the number of hours that you study while you're in school, that decrease in frequency of studying consistently will be detrimental to your academic health. 
If you decrease the frequency, if you are married and being intimate with your spouse, that constant decrease of frequent intimacy with your spouse can be detrimental to your married life. Now, pay attention. Notice I said certain activities. And the reason why I said certain activities rather than all is because there are other kinds of activities that when you decrease the frequency of, it's actually good for you. It's the opposite effect, right? For example, if you decrease the frequency of working 80 to 90 hour work weeks, that's actually good for your health. If you decrease the frequency of your intake of alcohol, that decrease of frequency of engaging in alcoholic beverages is actually good for you. But here's what I've noticed sometimes is that there are a lot of people who confuse these kinds of certain activities with these certain activities, and they crisscross them. And what I mean by that is that there are some people out there who decrease activities of frequency, thinking that that decrease is good for them, when in fact, that decrease is actually bad for them. And Christians today are guilty of this in one particular area of their Christian life. And you know what activity I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about what we're doing right now, this activity known as corporate worship, coming together on the Lord's Day to worship Him publicly on Sunday. More and more Christians today are not attending Sunday worship. They are worshiping God less and less in a corporate gathering like we are doing right now. In fact, it's become so blatantly obvious that even the non-Christian world have taken notice. For example, just last year, the Atlantic magazine, which is by no means a Christian magazine, have noticed this trend of how more and more professing Christians are participating less and less in Sunday worship. Listen to what it said in this article. Quote, according to the survey, about one-fifth of Americans now go to religious services a few times a year, but say they used to go a lot more. Roughly half of this group stopped going as often because of what the researchers called practical issues. They are too busy, have a crazy work schedule, or describe themselves as too lazy to go. Others said they just don't care about attending services as much as doing other things. We're continuing our sermon series entitled, Now What? And the whole point of this series is to answer the question in light of the recent call that God has given to us as a church to become our own separate independent church from KCQ. In light of that impending independence, we ask ourselves, what should be our priorities? What should be the goal? What should we make sure that we understand what the majors are and what the minors are so that when we do become our own independent separate church, we make sure we're focusing on the things that we're focusing on, the ones, the things that God should, uh, tells us that we should focus on. Well, as we look at our passage today, Psalm 73, one of the main priorities we need to have that really is going against the trend of so many Christians today is that we must prioritize in the faithful participation of corporate worship. We must make sure that what we do now, we do faithfully, consistently till the day the Lord calls us home. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you from our passage today as it regards to corporate worship. Number one, the consequences of neglecting corporate worship. Number two, the blessings that come with faithful participation in corporate worship. And finally, how to ensure that you are faithfully coming out and worshiping God corporately, okay? The consequences of not doing it faithfully, the blessings that come with doing it faithfully, and how to make sure you do it faithfully. Let's jump right in. First, the consequences of neglecting corporate 
worship. Now, in order to grasp this entire passage, you have to first identify the key verse that really helps us understand the main idea here. And according to Old Testament scholars, they all agree that the main verse that unlocks the full meaning of what this passage is trying to teach us is found in verse 17, because in verse 17, there is a phrase that gives light to the whole psalm. And that's the phrase that we see in verse 17. Can we have verse 17 up there, please? Verse 17, next slide. It says in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. There it is right there. The key unlocking verse. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now take a notice of that word until and take a mental note of it. Because that's a very, very important word. And why is that such an important word? Because of the phrase that comes right after it. The sanctuary of God. The sanctuary of God. The sanctuary of God. What in the world is that? Well, you know what it is. You know what a sanctuary is. It's a place of worship, but not just any kind of worship, but specifically this kind of worship, public worship, Sunday worship, the Lord's Day worship, corporate worship. Now, how do I know that? The reason why I know that is because of what it says at the very beginning of Psalm 73. Actually, we didn't have it read because it's not even up there, but if you look in the original Old Testament, in the original Hebrew, before verse 1, there is a phrase that begins this psalm, and it goes like this, a psalm of Asaph, or as some translation puts it, a song of Asaph. And so we ask ourselves, what's an Asaph? (laughs) Actually, a better way to put it is, who is Asaph? Who is this guy that this song is named after? Asaph, according to 1 Chronicles 16, was one of three men who led the corporate worship services during the days of King David. Okay, he was a worship leader. Okay, he was like Jane, our beloved Jane was just a moment ago. He was the worship leader in the days of Israel. In fact, if you study Old Testament theology, you discover that the most preeminent and the most famous worship leader in the Old Testament was this guy. Okay? This was the Chris Tomlin back in the days of Israel. This was the Rich Mullins in the days of Israel. This was the Darlene Check. Okay, before any of those famous worship leaders were around, there was Asaph. And what that tells us is that when he wrote this song, this psalm, he didn't intend for it to just be sung in the privacy of his own home for personal worship. You know, you know, sometimes, you know, these worship leaders, they'll just sit in their bathrooms because apparently the acoustic is so good and they'll just start singing and making up songs that they'll never share on Sunday. That's not what's happening here. He wrote this song, he wrote this psalm so that it could be sung in the context of a gathering like this, so that it could be in the context of corporate worship. And so when he refers to the sanctuary of God in verse 17, this is exactly what he's talking about, in the context of corporate worship. Now, with that out of the way, we come back to that word that we started off with, until, until. Now, what does that word even mean, U-N-T-I-L, until? Well, you look it up in any standard dictionary, and it'll tell you something that was prior to something else or something before something else. And usually that word is being conveyed to highlight a major transformation that happened as a result of encountering some experience or some event, right? That's what that word is usually used for, right? So we say things like, I wasn't hungry until I saw you eat, right? I wasn't excited about the game until I got in to the stadium. And for Asaph, there is something about corporate worship. There's something about worshiping with God's people that was so amazing, so powerful, that it changed what he was before he encountered corporate worship. And so we ask ourselves a question, what was Asaph like before he actually worshiped God? What kind of person was he? 
before this transformation that occurred due to corporate worship. Read again what he says about himself in verses 2 and 3. It says this, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now that is interesting. Because according to Asaph, by his own admission, prior to participating in corporate worship, he was looking at the world that he was living in, and he saw all the people who hate God, want nothing to do with God, and he saw them flourishing in life. They were They were so prosperous, and he reacted with envy. He was angry with envy. He wanted to be like them. He wanted to enjoy life the way they were enjoying life. Now, that's crazy. You know why? Because of who Asaph is. Remember, this is some Joe Schmo Christian who's just like an immature believer. This is a spiritual leader. This is a leader of spiritual leaders to where we ask ourselves, how can a man of this spiritual stature, of this devotion, of this maturity, be so envious of the wicked? It's just scandalous. And when you look at how he describes how the wicked were prosperous, how they got their prosperity, it's even more scandalous. Look again at what it says starting in verse 6 as he describes the wicked. He says, therefore pride is there the wicked's necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. How in the world... Can a man like Asaph be jealous of people like this? How can a man who's supposed to be singularly devoted to God be attracted to the life to where he even wants the life of these wicked people? How? The answer is found in verse 3 because embedded in verse 3 is that little phrase that shows us how all of this happens. It's the phrase in verse 3 that says, When I saw. When I saw. Asaph, as we can see from this verse, this this phrase, he's being governed by his eyes. Again, Asaph is being governed by his eyes to where everywhere he looks in this world, he sees a reality that seems to just mock his faith, that tells him that his faith is a joke. Go down to verse 14. I'm sorry we're going all over the place, but let's skip down to verse 14. Listen to what he says there. He says, for all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You know what he's saying? He's saying every morning when the bright sun comes out, showing everything for my eyes to see, all I see are the wicked who hate God thriving well to the point where it's a slap in my face in regards to me trying to live a faithful, godly life. And it got so bad, it got so discouraging for him, he even resorts to saying this in verse 13, in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, he's like, what a waste I did in living my life and trying to be devoted to God and honoring God and loving God. What a waste I lived my life like that, right? Asaph is having what we sometimes call a crisis of faith, a crisis of faith to where a part of him wants to be no different from the wicked because the only thing he perceives as what is true and what is real is a world where the wicked prosper. And people like him who are trying to live differently, trying to live faithfully, are nothing but a fool in the eyes of the world. It's a crisis of faith. And I would imagine that all of you in here at one point, and maybe even now, have struggled with this crisis of faith. Have you not? How could you not? Because if a man of Asaph's spiritual stature, if a man that godly can struggle like this, none of us are immune from struggling with this crisis of faith, right? 
a crisis where we just seem to think that it's so pointless of trying to live for God. Consider these words from Pastor Joseph Stoll because he captures this crisis so perfectly when he says this in one of his books. He says, quote, Life has a way of driving our faith dangerously close to the edge. What we expect from God so often seems to contradict what we experience in life. We find ourselves wanting to ask, if God is good, then why? If God is all-powerful, then where is he now? If God loved me, why am I not happier, richer? Why don't I have fewer problems and more peace? Unanswered questions like these threaten our enthusiasm and heartfelt commitment to Christ. We find our faith growing more stoic, our view of God less emotive. A disintegrating faith creates resigned, despairing Christianity that lacks vibrancy and enthusiasm for God. When faith doesn't make sense, this world becomes our only reality and resource where greed consumes us, leaving us disenfranchised from generosity towards those in need. It leaves us vulnerable to harboring ongoing, sometimes lifelong bitterness. Bitterness. According to Pastor Stoll, when you experience this crisis of faith that Asaph is experiencing in our psalm, it leaves you bitter, which he admits to in verse 21. You end up bitter. But here's what's interesting. Pastor Stoll goes on to say that the root of this bitterness, the source of why people are so bitter, is because of what he says, where you only see this world, this life on earth, as the only reality that exists. Interesting. Interesting. Now, given this is how Asaph was before he participated in corporate worship, what is the point here? Isn't the point that if you do not faithfully participate and engage in corporate worship like you're doing right now, doesn't that strongly imply that you will become bitter like Asaph? Doesn't it imply that the more you don't come and participate in worship, the more you're governed by your eyes? And the more you're governed by your eyes, that means you think this is the only reality that exists, that this is all that there is, and because this is all there is, you see nothing but the wicked prospering, and you're not. And what happens? You get bitter, you get envious of the wicked to the point where what? You start wanting to be like the wicked. Or at least you start wanting to live like the wicked. Indeed, that is the point. Which means, Christian, that is the consequences that you are going to face. When you neglect coming and being a part of this gathering and worshiping with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, when you stop engaging this way of God, this way to engage God, this is how you end up. This is what happens. You get governed by your eyes. And you think this is the only reality there is. And you see that this reality is filled with wicked people prospering and you're not. And you get bitter and envious and soon you're on a pathway into becoming wicked yourself. Now you're hearing all this and you're like, well, Pastor John, you're, you're, you're making such a claim here about corporate worship. Because what you're saying is that corporate worship can prevent all that from happening. But let me ask you, Pastor, what's so special? What's so significant? What's so powerful about corporate worship to where it can prevent all those things from happening to me? That's a great question. And to answer, let me go to my next point, the blessings of faithful participation of corporate worship. Read again with me if we can have our passage up, verse 16 and 17, where it says as follows. But when I thought how to understand all of this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Here, Asaph has just dropped us a big hint as to what makes corporate worship so powerful, so amazing, and so incredible transforming it's embedded in that one word at the end of verse 17 it's that word discerned discerned 
Now, if you grew up going to church, no doubt you've heard that word before, but do you know what it really means? What does it mean to discern something? Well, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the word this way. Discern means to detect with senses other than vision. In other words, when you are discerning something, you discover something, but you discover it without your eyes. You discover it in a way beyond your vision, okay? Interesting. According to Asaph, when he was in corporate worship, he detected something. He discovered something in his participation in worship that completely eradicated this crisis of faith. What did he discover? He discovered the end of the wicked. He understood their final destination. But here's the thing. He discovered this. He detected all this without his eyes. He detected it without his vision. Here's the question. How did Asaph discover this? How did he detect this if he didn't use his eyes? The answer? He used his ears. He was listening. You're like, wait a minute, where do you get that in the text? I don't see anything remotely close about some ear. Well, it's a complicated way of answering. Bear with me. Take a listen to how he describes the wicked again, starting in verse 8, if we could have our passage. Starting in verse 8, listen to how he is describing the wicked who are prospering. He says, they scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struck through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high notice how Asaph is describing the behavior of the wicked? What are they constantly doing? Right? They're just talking. Blah, 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 blah. They're just constantly talking nonstop. Talk, 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 talk. You know anyone like that? Constantly talking? The way that you're smiling right now, you're thinking of someone right now, right? Maybe you're sitting next to them. I don't know. You know someone who talks too much probably, right? And usually we think of that person as just an annoying person, right? But the Bible says that someone who constantly talks is actually a dangerous person spiritually because they're on a pathway of becoming a very evil, wicked person. Look at, listen to what it says in Proverbs 10 and verse 19. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. In the original Hebrew, I think it just says, shut up, right? Shut your hole, if you want to have the fraternity version of the Hebrew Bible. Shut your mouth, be quiet, stop talking. Why does the Bible say things so harshly? Well, think about it. If a person is always talking, what are they never doing? They're never listening, right? You can't talk and you can't listen at the same time, right? Here's the thing. What do you assume about a person who's always talking, never listening, always talking? What does that behavior assume about that person? Doesn't it assume that they think they know everything? They know exactly what's going on. They have the 411 on everything, on everyone. They know everything. That's why they got to keep talking, right? They have all this knowledge, all this information that no one else has, and so they need to share it, right? But conversely... Think of a person who's always listening. What does that behavior assume? Doesn't it assume that they don't know everything, unlike the person always talking? When a person is always listening, they're acknowledging through that behavior, hey, I don't know everything what's going on. I don't know reality as well as I think I do. I don't know the ins and outs of life, right? When a person is listening, they are acknowledging through that act that they don't know everything, which is why the first thing that a person who doesn't know everything should do is not open his eyes to see, but open his ears to hear. Because again, think about it. When you look at something with your eyes, do you really see everything going on around you? No. 
You can only see a portion of what's going on around you. You can only focus on one thing, usually the thing in front of you. But think about what you can do with your hearing. Can you pick up what's going on in front of you with your hearing? Yes. Can you be aware of what's going on behind you with what you're hearing? Yes. Can you hear a plane that you can't even see up in the sky because its engines are roaring and you know what's up there because you hear it? Yes. Can you know that there is a baby crying downstairs at 3 a.m. in the morning? Even though you've never seen this baby, you know it's there and it's annoying the heck out of you because you can't sleep? Yes. Your hearing opens up your perception of reality so much broader, so much more than what you can capture with your limited vision, right? The more you hear, the more you perceive of what's really going on around you than what you can just see with your eyes. In fact, your ears are so perceptive that you can actually figure out what's going on inside of a person that you could never pick up just by looking at them. You know, I do a lot of counseling as a pastor, and I always get shocked. When someone comes up to me like, PJ, i got to have some time with you. Let's talk. And I invite them to my office, and we counsel. And I'm shocked. Because every time I see them here on Sunday, they look so put together. They look so happy. But when they open up and I listen with my ears, I see so much more of them that I never saw just with my limited eyesight. Right? What you hear opens you up to reality so much more than what you see. Listen to how theologian Michael Horton puts it. He says, sight presents surface while hearing presents us with interiors and depth. Sound situates us in the middle of things as they are happening. Vision puts us in front of things in a sequential order. We can only fix our gaze on one part of a given landscape in any given moment. With sound, however, we hear things all around us simultaneously, which places us in the middle of things rather than just in front of them. So putting all this together, what's Asaph saying? Asaph is saying that corporate worship It's so transforming. It opens you up to what reality is really like beyond what you just see with your eyes because when you come to corporate worship, the main thing you should do is listen, to hear. And as you hear, not only do you become more aware of this reality that you're currently living on, but you become aware of another reality that exists that you currently can't see with your eyes. What is this other reality? Verse 23, let's have it up there. It says this, verse 25, he says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now that's weird. That's weird. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Jesus. Asaph starts off before corporate worship, and the only reality that he knows of is what he sees with his eyes. But when he comes to corporate worship and he listens, all of a sudden he has his attention awakened to another reality, a reality that really exists, a reality that's more real, a reality that's eternal, that he cannot see with his eyes. The reality of heaven. You know, the Bible tells us that reality is not limited to just the world that we're living in now, what we go through in this three-dimensional space that we're living in. There's so much more to reality than the here and the now on this earth. There is another reality, a heavenly reality that the Bible sometimes calls the world to come. And this world is far superior than this reality in every way. You know why? Because the reality that we're living in now is limited. It's going to end. Even scientists will say, second thermodynamics law, the world of entropy, the sun is going to burn out. We are going to die. It's the limited, transitory phasing of life. But the world to come, this heavenly reality, it's eternal. And what's amazing is that God's going to usher in this reality, bring it into here, 
And he's going to bring transformation and renewal and hope that we currently don't have now. Which means if you don't have that hope, if you're not even aware of this heavenly reality, what's going to happen to you? You know what's going to happen? Exactly what Pastor Stoll says. Listen to what he says in his other portion of the book. He says this, quote, if all we have is this world, then revenge, bitterness, and hatred will be our responses when deep injustices come upon us. If, however, we understand that this world is prone to offense and cruelty, but that in the world to come, in the heavenly world, God will guarantee that every wrong will be made right and that justice will be done, we are suddenly released from the pressure of dealing with the issue ourselves. Yielding the tension to God for his care, we can be free emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually to love even our offenders. Wow. The more you participate in corporate worship, the more you know that there's more to life than just what you see with your eyes. There's another heavenly reality. And the more you're aware of this heavenly reality... It not only gives you the strength to cope of living in this world where the wicked are thriving, but it actually enables you to love the wicked, to forgive the wicked when they hurt you. So instead of recycling that vicious cycle of you hurt me, I hurt you, revenge, tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, to where it just exacerbates violence and racism and hatred, we can actually put an end to that as we live in this world. Because we have this heavenly perspective that is only found as we listen the gathering of God's people. Because what are we doing when we come to gather? What are we primarily doing? What are we listening to? Are you listening to Jane's beautiful voice? Yes, right? Are you listening to my nasally voice when I preach? Yes, but primarily you are listening to what? The word of God. The word of God. The word of God that is found in every song, right? Because it quotes scripture. The call to worship, which is basically an Old Testament psalm. The confession of sin that we find in the prophets. The assurance of pardon that we find in the New Testament epistles. And the sermon that's found everywhere all over the Bible. The more you hear the word, the more you are educated, the more you are aware, the more you are enlightened. That there's more to life, there's more to reality than here and now. Do you see that? Now, before I keep going... I do want to go on a little bit of a tangent, a tangent that I think is so important for us to listen to. And I specifically want to talk to those of you who are not always here every Sunday. (laughs) I'm sorry it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. Remember, I love you. And I'm saying this for your encouragement and also for your good. You ready? If it is true that when we gather together, we become more aware of this heavenly reality that prevents us from becoming bitter and envious of the wicked. Why are so many of uh, Christians, why are some of you, why are you not participating every week? Why are you not here every Sunday? Or if you're visiting us from another church, why are you not at your church every Sunday? Why? Especially when you know what you get out of it. You get this heavenly perspective that frees you from becoming bitter and envious and a wicked person. Why would you neglect that? Why? Again, Pastor Joseph Stoll answers that question for us powerfully as he describes what he calls the earthbound Christian. Listen to what he says. Quote, earthbound Christians live the important segment of their lives only in the context of this world. Their expectations, dreams, plans, hopes, and schemes relate to what they can acquire and experience now. Money, careers, family, retirement, and time are managed and manipulated by the tyranny of of temporalism. Those in this category 
uh, fear more are, are more susceptible excuse me, to greed, the pursuit of immediate peace and pleasure, and a success that is defined by competence and credentials that enhance our own sense of significance. Eternity is not the guide for earthbound believers, so concepts like investing in the world to come have little influence on them. They give out of a sense of obedience and obligation. They see their careers as platforms for their own significance and security, not as a means to advance the eternal kingdoms of Christ or as a platform upon which to stage the values of the king. Obedience to the point of discomfort, loss, or suffering is an unthinkable option since they have been trained to expect peace, satisfaction, and emotional fulfillment here on earth. What is Pastor Stoll saying? He's telling us why so many Christians today, why maybe even some of you, are not here faithfully. Why you don't care about what we have to offer because you don't care about heaven. You don't care about heaven. Now, who in the world would not care about heaven? Well, why would you care for something if you think you already have it or you think you can already get it for yourself, right? The reason why some Christians are earthbound and to where they don't care about heaven is because they think they've already found it or that they can do it on their own through their career, through their family, through their finances. I can build my own heaven here, right? It's right here in Queens, or it's right here in Long Island, or it's right here in Jersey, or it's right up here at Westchester. I can build my own heaven here on earth, and I need to use the time on Sunday that I would normally use to be reminded of the only real heaven that exists by building up and working to build my heaven on earth, because I'm an earthbound Christian, you see? Could it be that some of us don't prioritize this because we're so busy prioritizing a heaven that doesn't even exist. And what's so tragic is that you end up forfeiting the only heaven that is there. I can't tell you what's more tragic to me. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, I am in this sanctuary. You know what I'm doing? I have my laptop open, and I have my attendance record. <laughs> I know when you guys are here and are not. Right? Green means you're here. Red means you're not. If you are a member of NCF, I pray for all of you alphabetically, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, for about 45 minutes to an hour. And you know who I get so grieved over? Is when I see this person's name or this family's name and all I see is red, 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 green, red, 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 red. Because it makes me feel like, why are you forfeiting, you know? the real heaven for a heaven that does not exist. You know what's so tragic is when so many Christians are so earthbound that by the time they reach what they think has heaven on earth, they realize it's nothing what they thought it would be. And see, yeah, that's not what I want for you. That is not what any pastor wants for his people. And so the question is, how do we prevent that from happening? Well, the answer leads me to my final point, how to faithfully participate in corporate worship. Now, at this point, some of you are hearing what I've been saying, and you're hearing this notion that corporate worship exposes you to the awareness of heaven because of what you hear, right? And it prevents you from becoming bitter and, and, and so forth and envious and therefore becoming like the wicked. And you're like, uh, I don't know I buy that, Pastor. I don't know if I agree with that. I have a hard time agreeing with you, and the reason why I have a hard time agreeing with you is this notion of heaven. Heaven. You know, we talk about heaven all the time here at church. But really, if you think about it, it's such a hard concept to really wrap your head around, is it not? You know, if a little kid, whether it's your own kid or the, one of the many kids that run around here, they can, can you tell me what heaven is like? 
Chances are, I think you're going to be like, well, mm, well, you're going to probably quote something that you heard me say up here and you're going to butcher it, right? And the reason why you're going to have a hard time is because the notion of heaven, the concept of heaven is so vague, it's so nebulous, it's so hard to apprehend, let alone comprehend it, right? It's so hard for any of us, really, if we're honest, to really envision and see with our mind's eye what heaven is like. Right? And because it's so hard to describe, not only is it difficult to describe it to a child, it's difficult for us to prioritize. Right? You know, when you know what you want that you think is going to be blissful, like heavenly blissful, I know what a corner office looks like, Pastor John. I know what $130,000 a year looks like, Pastor John. I know what a brand new car looks like, Pastor John. How could I prioritize heaven over those things when I don't know what heaven looks like? How do I understand What am I supposed to do? Here's my response to that. Maybe that's the point. Maybe that's exactly what God wants you to struggle with. Maybe when God, why God doesn't go out of his way to give us a strong, vivid, visual description of heaven in the Bible, at least not in a way that we can understand, is so that we can be reminded of something else that we cannot envision. Is there anything else in the Bible that you know of that the Bible teaches that we cannot see? that we cannot visualize? How about God? Do you read any visual description of what God looks like except for beyond some weird prophetic apocalyptic literature? Like, what does this say? The head of an eagle, a bronze... What is this? Right? Maybe the reason why God makes heaven so hard to visualize is to remind us of God and how he's hard to visualize. And that's kind of a little bit of his little, his teaching tool to remind us of God, that when you think of heaven, you should think of God, right? That heaven and God are inseparable. But then it leads you to the question, why in the world does God not want us to see him? Have you noticed that? If you read through the Bible, there are situations where God is physically present in the presence of somebody. But every time he does, he makes sure that they can't see him. Case in point, Jacob is wrestling with God in the pitch black in Peniel, Right? And the sun is about to come, and God says, let go of me, right? You cannot see me. Jacob doesn't want to let go. But God breaks his hip, and he goes. Jacob can't see it. Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai, and God's presence is right there. And Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, nope, puts him right in the crevice of a rock and passes by to where he can't see him, right? Isaiah has a vision of God, but he doesn't really see God because he's covered with all these clouds, and he, here's what he does see. He sees angels who have a much better vantage point in seeing God directly. And even the angels have to cover their face. Even they can't see God. What's going on? Why does God not want to be seen? Why does God not let us see him at all? Well, have you heard this phrase? You can't judge a book by its cover. You ever heard that phrase before? You can't judge a book by its cover. What does that phrase mean? It means you cannot adequately evaluate someone's worth simply by what you see with them with your eyes, right? You cannot determine a kind of person, who they are, simply by what you see with your eye, right? There's much more to a person than what you can capture with your vision of that person. That's what it means, okay? And unfortunately, that was the problem for the religious leaders during Jesus' day. You know, when Jesus walked on the scene... He looked nothing like what the religious leaders thought that the Messiah would look like, right? They had a certain visual image of what the Messiah would look like, and Jesus didn't fit that description whatsoever. In fact, if you read in the Old Testament where Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus, one of the ways he describes Jesus is like, he was an ugly man. (laughs) 
You know, he had the form of appearance that did not draw the crowd. Right? When Jesus walked the earth, no one flocked to him because they thought he visually looked stunning. Do you know why the crowd started following him? Because of his words, what he started to say, what they were hearing from Jesus' mouth, his teaching. That's when the flocks started coming towards him because when they heard his word, that's when they really saw for who he was, right? Remember my second point, your ears capture more of reality than what your eyes is able to capture. And that's true of people as well, case in point. You know, when I first met Sarah face-to-face, we were emailing before because we met on eHarmony, and we were, like, emailing back in August, but she said, look, if you want to take this somewhere, we got to see face-to-face. And so I flew out in October. It was October, the weekend of October 31st. It was Halloween weekend in 2007. She picked me up. As soon as I laid eyes on her, I said, I love this woman. I literally said that. I said, I love you. I didn't say that to her, but I was like, I love you, right? I just knew. It wasn't lust, okay? I loved, maybe a little bit of lust. I don't know, but I loved her. I knew that I loved her. You know how long it took for my wife to love me back? Four weeks. It took four weeks for my wife to love me back. How did she love me? When did she confess her? When did she know? Was it when I was visiting her and we were sitting at a beautiful table with candle lighting where my beautiful face was right in front of hers, right? Was it as we were walking on the beach dressed in my nice Sunday clothing that she fell in love with me? No. You know how she fell in love with me? Over the phone. (laughs) I was in Seattle. She was back in Boston. And she remembered clearly, it was four weeks after our first meeting, she was walking to her car in the parking lot of Panera, and I said something. I just said some words. And as soon as I said those words, she said, I love this man. And I was like, what did I say? To this day, she's like, I have no idea. <laughs> like, what do you mean you can't? It's like, whatever, I love you anyway now, babe. It did its job. Let it go. Never let it go, right? That's why God doesn't want you to see him, at least not now. He wants you to hear him first. He wants you to be captured by his words. So there you can understand the true essence. You know, Sarah, when she heard me and loved me, she loved the real me, who I really was. Okay? And that's the same thing with God. He wants you to hear him first before you see him. Why? What would happen if instead of hearing God first, you would just see God? You know what would happen if God just, you just stand right in his presence, you could see him with your eyes? What would you see? You know what you would see? Pure holiness. That's what you would see. Pure holiness. You would just see God in all of his holiness and all of his glory. Holiness and glory are synonymous, right? You would just see God in all his glory. You see God in all of his full glory. You know what sinners do in the presence of pure holiness? You go, ah! (laughs) That's what you do. I'm a man of unclean lips. And you're terrified of his holiness because you know his holiness is so great and you're such a sinner That the fear, the anxiety, the overwhelming otherness of God will just kill you. The reason why God tells Moses that you can't see me is not because, you know, God is playing some some cosmic hide and seek with him to tease with him. He's protecting Moses. Moses is not holy enough to see God. He's a sinner. If he was confronted with the visual holiness of God, he would die, right? Which means the first time you encounter the holiness of God, before you hear anything from him, you're going to be terrified. You're going to be terrified. 
You first need to hear something from God. You need to hear his word so that when you do eventually see his holiness, instead of being terrified by it and wanting to die, you're drawn to the holiness of God. It's beautiful to you, to where you want to get more of the holiness of God. It all changes from words to where when you are encountered with the holiness of God, first with words and then seeing him in his glory, instead of running away, instead of thinking that God is against you and is going to destroy you and condemn you as he should because he's a holy God and you're a sinner, you're going to say, God, I love you. I want more of you. In fact, we see this happening right before our eyes in our psalm, starting in verse 21. Listen to what happens. Asaph begins, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Go back to verse 24. Listen to what he says. He says, you first guide me with your counsel. What is counsel? Words, right? You guide me with words, and then, after I have the knowledge of words, I am now ready to what? Encounter your glory, to receive me to your glory. What is glory? It's God's holiness. You first have to hear from God, so that when you encounter with the holiness of God, you know that the holiness is no longer a threat. It's all because of God's counsel, God's word. Here's the question. What is this counsel that Asaph is talking about that changes our glorious God from being terrifying to feeling like he's the treasure that we desire. He's the portion that we want. Well, in order to answer that question, you have to first know the kind of person who gives counsel, which is what? A counselor. You know what a counselor is? A counselor has two jobs. The first job of a counselor and his main job is to make sure that the person he's counseling flourishes, lives a blessed life. And because that's his main job, it leads him to a second job, which is to what? to defend the person that he's counseling from any threat that's against him. That's what a counsel does. He provides advice and counsel to make sure that any threat that goes against the counselee is minimized and neutralized. That's what a counsel does. And Asaph is saying, God is my counselor. God is your counselor. Here's what's interesting. Isaiah goes on to say when he prophesies about Jesus, calling him the wonderful counselor. Right? We hear about that every Christmas. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. You know why he's the wonderful counselor? Because he's the, counsel, he's the kind of counselor who is so committed to our flourishing, to where he's willing to suffer anything to defend us against any threat, even the greatest threat against us. And as a result, we react with wonder, with awe of him. That's why he's called the wonderful counselor. Because he's the kind of counselor who is willing to do anything for us to flourish, He's willing to go so far as to suffer and do anything for us so that the greatest threat against us, like God's holiness, can no longer be a threat, right? That's why Jesus is the wonderful counselor. If you read through Jesus' life in the Gospels, he's always referring to this counsel over and over. Let me read to you his most famous counsel of this. John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The counsel of God is the gospel. The gospel. 
which is why every time you come to this corporate worship, you are always going to hear the gospel. At the end of every sermon, it's always the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Why? Because that is the counsel that changes the holiness of God from being a great threat to being our greatest treasure. To where the more we understand the gospel, the more we want to hear it, to where it inflames our love for God. And because we love God, we want to encounter this God more with what he has to say to us in his word when we listen as we gather together. It's by believing in the counsel of God, i.e. the gospel, that you become a faithful worshiper of God. Faithful worshiper of God. Here's my question in Seattle. Do you understand this counsel? Have you received this counsel? Have you embraced this counsel? I want to invite you now to spend a few moments in reflecting of what we've just said today. And to facilitate, I invite you to close your eyes for just a moment. And I want you to reflect on what it means to worship God. And really, I just want to ask you one question. How faithful have you been in participating in the worship of God, in the corporate worship of God? If it's been inconsistent, let me ask you honestly, why? Why have you been so inconsistent? And let me ask you further, has it affected how you look at the world? Are you being more governed by your eyes than what you hear? Has your vision of reality been so tunneled vision and so limited because you're so focused that you have forgotten the full picture of what's really going on in life? Have you forfeited, potentially, the only heaven that exists? for a heaven that's not even real but you're squandering every Lord's day to get closer and closer to I invite you now to go to the Lord in prayer and ask for the spirit to bring his conviction let's pray Father, as we have heard your word, we ask, oh God, that that would be our primary means of understanding this reality, that we would hear your word, that we would always be listening. Oh God, we live in a world that is constantly deceiving us with what we see in our eyes. And Father, we know that we have been duped in so many ways. God, we just need your grace. We need your mercy. Would you help us to see the truth, not by what we see with our eyes, but what we hear in your word. 
Father, many of us have struggled in making what we are doing now a priority. And as a result, we have become envious. We become bitter. And we even find ourselves sometimes thinking, why can't I have the life of the wicked? Oh, God forbid that we would ever come to that place again. That moving forward, that we would know that as long as we have you through your son, Jesus Christ, through faith in him as our savior substitute, we have everything that we need and that nothing on this earth could ever compare of what it means to know you, to be loved by you, and to have the promise that we will be with you face to face where we will see your holiness no longer as a terrifying thing that could destroy us, but a beautiful, delightful thing that gives us life for all eternity. A beauty that captures us, that never fades. A hope that endures forever. God, may we move forward as a church that prioritizes and hungers and yearns to gather together so that we can hear from you. Father, I yearn for the day where all the saints of this body would look forward to this day to come and hear from you. Especially during days of the week where they are struggling. Especially in days where the marriages aren't working. Especially when the children are sick. Especially when when work is not doing well. Especially on moments where they are confronted of how wicked and perverted they are. God, I pray in those moments especially that we would come to this place and see it as an oasis where we can drink deeply by what we hear and we can be refreshed we can be renewed we can be empowered so that we can go back out into the world and no longer envy the wicked but instead we could serve and love them in the hopes that such love will point them to the greatest of loves point them to the love of God in Jesus Christ thereby blessing this world God, would you hear this prayer and answer it? Oh God, we wait for this to become a true reality in our hearts and in our community. Oh God, hear us now. For we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people together said.